Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis Classics. I'm Gil Gross. Today's episode is a conversation with Joel Drucker on the 1976 U.S. Open final between Jimmy Connors and Bjorn Borg. Joel is probably the number one person in the universe I would want to have this conversation with because this match plays a prominent role in his book. It takes up an entire chapter in Joel's book titled Jimmy Connors Saved My Life. And if you haven't read the book, you're probably familiar with Joel's work for Tennis.com, where he is a writer. I enjoyed this conversation immensely. There's so many different angles to get into, from the rackets to the surface. Uh, Now, there was a power outage in the middle of our conversation. You may notice an edit. Uh, right before we get into the third set tiebreak, but Joel was kind enough to bear with this power outage for about an hour and a half, and uh, we were able to resume the conversation later. So my thank you for that, but uh, I do think that you guys are going to enjoy this. Without further ado, Joel Drucker. We're joined for the first time by legendary tennis writer Joel Drucker. You can find his work at Tennis.com, author of the book, uh, Jimmy Connors saved my life. Joel joins us from the West Coast. How are you doing? All right, Gil. How are you? It's great to be here. Yeah, um, I, I had to. I had to bring you on for a Jimmy Connors match. There is no one better to talk about a Jimmy Connors match well, uh, I'm on than it. yourself. To talk about him. So um, we're going to go over the 1976 U.S. Open final between Bjorn Borg and Jimmy Connors. Um, Joel, th- this is this was kind of an interesting one um, because Connors has this dominant '74 season, um, and then in '75 he doesn't win one. And although he had a great year um, after not capturing any of the titles in the lead up to the '76 U.S. Open, was there a lot of pressure on Jimmy to to win a, a major title for the first time in a while? Yes, there was. And I think to set the context a little further, you, you nailed it, Gil. He wins three majors in 74, the Australian, Wimbledon, the U.S. 75, he loses all three of those finals, which is, that's a pretty good year, but losing all three of them is a little, is frustrating. And then I think what people should understand, though, about the flow of the tennis year then is that the first two majors of the year were not nearly as important to what the tennis season was about as they are now. So it's early 76, Connors wins a huge tournament, the Philadelphia Indoor Tournament, and he beats Borg on the way to winning that title. And um, that's, that's a more important t- title than the Australian Open, but it's not a major. The French, Connors doesn't even play. Borg loses early. Um, but again, the tennis year does not revolve around the Australian and French that much then. So the real alpha and omega of tournaments then were Wimbledon in the open. And then that's where things start to maybe change a little in that Borg wins Wimbledon for the first time in 76, surprising everybody because people thought, here's this clay quarter. It's a little bit like Nadal when he first won Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. It's like, who's this guy's a clay quarter winning Wimbledon? And Borg wins it. And even though at that point, I believe he was uh, one in five with Connors coming to the US Open final um, or one in six, something a little behind on it. Yeah, one in five. Lost, one in five. He, um, he had um, lost to Connors at Palm Springs in a tournament that year. So Connors was still ranked ahead of Borg, but Borg had won Wimbledon. So the stage was really set. That's right. The stage was really set. Right. This match was going to determine who was number one in the year, regardless of computer or anything else. That's, 
you're right. It very much was, and kind of liked that kind of pressure. I want to talk about the popularity of the sport at this time before we, we get into this match, because uh, Forest Hills is, is completely packed. Center court's completely packed. And the commentator, uh, Pat Summerall with CBS, says that the attendance record for the tournament was broken by 34,000 people. That was the margin between 75 and 76, which is seemingly a, a massive jump. Was, was this kind of a, a popularity boom for tennis at this time? And if so, why so? Why? The high watermark of the tennis boom was really happening right around this time. In 1970, it was estimated that there were about uh, 10 million Americans who played tennis. By 76 or so, that number tripled. Uh, in 71, there was something like seven tournaments on television. By 75, 76, there were 70. So the game through the 70s, and, and I know I, I started playing tennis on 1971, 72. So I'm very much a child of that period. And the game then at one point was the fourth most popular sport in the country behind football, baseball, and basketball. So tennis in those years was just a, a supernova, was just rocketing. Why that happened, you, look at, you can look at it from two different ways. One is what you call the top-down thing, which is the game went open in 68, and suddenly a great many people got to see what an interesting, captivating sport tennis was. And there happened to be some very compelling players playing too, who were even not Americans and players from other countries. You had Americans like Ash, Arthur Ashe, Billie Jean King, Chris Everett emerges, um, Connors starts to emerge, and the, the great Australians were still playing, like Laver and Rosal and John Newcomb, Yvonne Gulagon. There's this Romanian guy, Ilina Stasi, this Swedish guy, Borg. So the game was really blossoming. That's a little bit the top down, but there's also kind of the, the bottom up. Um, you won't believe this, but 50, certainly 60 years ago, exercise wasn't considered that big a thing for masses of Americans. But sometime in the late 60s, there starts to emerge a little of this do your own thing, find your self-expression, and, and even things like the ecology movement, the environmental movement, start to say, wait, we've got to take care of our planet. We've got to take care of ourselves. And so there's this movement that becomes in the late 60s, early 70s, the fitness boom. That's yeah. where running becomes a big thing. And tennis is one of the first children of that time. So things are happening in the late 60s, early 70s that are making tennis go supersonic. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. Um, I, we, we've both mentioned Forest Hills by this point. That was the, the site of the U.S. Open at this time um, on the west side of, uh, of Man Manhattan, right? No, the West Side Tennis Club is in Queens. Oh, Queens. Right, right, right. Okay. So, Queens, so that, not, too far from, um, not too far from where the tournament is currently played at Flushing Meadows. Okay. Um, but the surface was, was hard true. So a green clay, which, I mean, I think a lot of tennis players are, are familiar with the surface, but we don't see it on tour anymore. How would you describe the surface of uh, the 76 U.S. Open? Well, let's keep in mind that it had been grass through the end of 1974. It had been, it had been played at grass. However, in order to make the game more even-handed for more players, not necessarily to help American players, but to actually hurt a great many American players who'd been net rushers, the hard tree surface was similar to the clay at Roland Garros, but not quite as slow, a little more easy grippable. I mean, it's a common clay. It's very common on the East Coast. I'm sure you've played on it some. I played on yep. it not nearly, not nearly as prevalent in the West Coast as in the East Coast. And it's a, a clay surface, but again, a little more firm and a little easier to get your feet under you than the European clay, which is a much slower, the, the famous red clay. 
And, and that's a perfect, um, that's a perfect thing to keep in mind when we talk about the play styles of Borg and Connors. Um, I guess the contrast here is not as stark as some other matches that included Bjorn Borg or Jimmy Connors, because both of them were, were pretty comfortable hitting ground strokes in a time where there was a lot of serve volley, a lot of net rushing. Would you say that they were kind of contrasting baseliners? Borg, more of a counterpuncher, relied more on his consistency, whereas Connors was more of your modern aggressive baseliner. That's a very good characterization. It's interesting. These two were both, these were the two best players in the world and by far the two best baseliners. I mean, Connors was a good clay court player. I mean, he won the U.S. clay courts four times, including beating Borg in a final. Um, he'd learned to play on clay. These, these guys were kind of changing the way the game was played. Just a few years earlier, the prevalent players were serving volley players, and so they were each countering serving volleys with their two-handed backhands, counters with a fairly aggressive return off, uh, on his service return to counter a net rusher. Connors was thought of as a counter puncher too, in contrast to a net rusher. Borg, more of a defensive player. You know, their matches usually revolved around Connors trying to control the forward part of the court in the semicircle inside the baseline and Borg trying to control it from behind the court. So Borg, more of a defensive player, Connors seeking to initiate. And as you can tell from seeing the match, Connors is the one looking to kind of vector his way forward into the court and close off points. And Borg is pretty content to patrol the baseline incredibly fast. Bjorn Borg, maybe I mean, at, at a certain stage, the fastest player in tennis and still one of the fastest ever. Yeah, so let's, let's get into the first set. That dynamic was very, very clear in the first set uh, because um, Connors was dictating play. And what it reminded me of, this first set, it reminded me of a boxing match where one fighter has a 10-inch reach advantage because it seemed like Jimmy could hurt Bjorn from an area of the court where Bjorn just didn't have the power uh, to beat Jimmy. Um, so in other words, you know, Connors was hitting these blistering flat backhands uh, that, that really could do a lot of damage from the back of the court. Borg was really just hanging in, defending, using his great movement, but wasn't having tons of success in the first set. It was really Jimmy. If you're scoring at his boxing, you're seeing Connors is the one scoring all the points. However tennis works, you don't, the judge doesn't give you points for deep ground strokes. The judge only right. gives you points for winning the point. So, so you're, yeah, throughout that first set, it's the question is, oh, how's Borg, how's Borg going to win this match? Or only if Connors loses this match, because basically Borg is just saying, okay, okay, okay. And Connors is just going boom, boom, boom. And, and Connors for this tournament had brought back into the fold his former coach, Pancho Segura, who very much wanted him to be more aggressive that way. Connors could sometimes get a little passive because he could usually with his ground strokes, beat a great many players anyway, but Borg was so steady and so fast. So Connors knew he had to have a little bit more, a little bit more court position, a little more aggression, go after the ball. Yeah, really yeah. Uh, take it to Borg. I thought hitting on the rise was really important for Connors in this set and throughout the match because Borg had this very loopy ball with lots of net clearance and it probably backed a lot of players up. But Connor's so comfortable hitting on the rise, especially on his backhand side, he could really step into the court and be aggressive on a ball that Borg was probably used to playing pretty safely. That's right. And so Connor was constantly on Borg, pressing him, pressing him, pounding on him. And Connor was very good at hitting the ball on the rise. And, 
And if you can hit the ball on the rise and hit it hard, because Connors was the hardest hitter in the game at that point. Mm-hmm. So if you can do both, you can really take away time from your opponents. And he did that quite well with Borg. And you can see that again and again in these rallies. And then Borg, if the ball was a little shorter than Borg wanted, Connors would get on it. And Connors was willing to come to net and, and stick his nose in there and, right. and make Borg try to pass him. So how much of that was the racket that, that Jimmy Connors played with? Uh, Connors has, and I, I see it right by your left shoulder, an aluminum, an aluminum racket made by Wilson. Yeah. Borg used a wooden racket. So, so you had that contrast there. You know, it's funny, Gil, that you mentioned this. You're the second person I've talked to in the last week under the age of 30 who, bring, who cites technology. And it's funny. It's neat. It's great. Because I think, you know, I didn't grow up with much technology. I grew up with minimal technology in my life. I didn't, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have computers. But I think people younger, technology has been more a part of your lifestyle. So you want to invoke things like, like the racket. See, but it's not the racket that, it's not the technology that makes the playing style. It's the playing style that finds the racket. So Connors, Connors already knew how to play tennis like that. He started using this racket when he was 14 or 15, but he'd been playing for several years. So the, the technique, the concept was there. I don't, I don't th- I think Connors could have just as soon played that way with a wood racket stylistically and, and hit the ball early, but the racket helped him feel that he could really wing the ball and zing the ball. And it gave him that, that what he felt was his confidence. But as far as the actual powerful qualities of the racket, as if it's like a car with more horse, horsepower, I don't think that's it. It was more Connor's view of his game and the way his mother and grandmother taught him. I mean, I'll tell you a story about Connor's and hitting the ball that way. And I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure he wasn't quite, if he was using the T2000, the Wilson T2000, he was just barely starting to use it at this point, or maybe not even at all. Connors was at a tournament in North Carolina with a younger player from St. Louis named Trey Walkie. Trey about three years younger than him. Trey was a great, they're both very good juniors. And they go inside in this gym on a rainy day because there's no tennis happening. They go inside and they start hitting balls against the wall of the gym. And Trey Walkie was kind of a player in the Ken Rosewall Federer mode. He had touch and feel. And he's showing Connors these nice you know, shots. They're hitting them against the wall, these kind of finesse shots. Suddenly, from up in the stands of the gym, someone comes running down. And it's Connor's grandmother, Bertha, also known as Two Mom. And she grabs the racket out of Connor's hands and goes, what are you doing? That's not how we hit the ball. This is how we hit the ball. And she hits the ball as hard as she can against the wall and short hops it. Just takes, it, takes a short hop shot. Boom, boom. And she goes, that's what we do. She goes, any questions? I mean, so in a way, his, his gestalt towards how he went about playing was, um, was uh, very much that way. Regard- I mean, he would have been doing that if he learned to play with a garbage can lid. You know, you take right. the ball, you go after it, you pound it. Like well, the- Joel, like- at the end of the day, uh, this was one of, the, one of the earlier aluminum rackets. If, if the T2000 was this, was this miracle potion, then everyone on tour would have been using it, but that wasn't really the case. Many did initially. Not, they tried it. You know, I always think of the T2000 it was kind of like socialism. It was an interesting, innovative idea. A great many people experimented with it, and then it proved a failure. I think a lot of players, Billie Jean King won Wimbledon with it, Ann Jones, um, uh, Clark Graber, a number of players were using it. They couldn't control it. 
they couldn't control. Not a very good racket. I mean, it's funny. I use this racket. This is not the exact one, but I had this racket when I was about 13. You couldn't really flip the ball. The, the flatness, you, you probably, you couldn't really hit topspin to control the ball too much. So you needed some of the technique that Connors had. He had also had, he would have lead tape on one side of it, just one part of it, not all around. And, and it made it a little heavier and he had it strung quite tight and he would, and he felt, you know, to him, it was like uh, King Arthur and the sword. And he could just take that racket back and felt very confident. But again, as we, as you've seen, the strokes are very flat. Mm-hmm. Going over that a little higher than people think TV doesn't do his strokes justice. They were still going several feet over the net, but a lot closer to the net, a lot more line drive like than Borg's parabola. While, while we're there, how about the slice forehand? That's something that immediately side. stood out. Yeah, side, side spin on a lot. Um, more side spin than slice. More okay. coming, the racket coming across the ball. Yeah. But down the line one. And, and I've talked to Connor's opponents about that. Um, more coming across the ball than the slice than an underspin. You know, right. we think it wasn't so much that. It was more coming like that. And what he would do, he would use that to redirect the rally. His players knew one area to get in on Connors was to hit the ball low and short with not much pace to his forehand. You could see from his stroke, it was hard for him to, to lift the ball and get as much, get as much power on that. And sometimes on approach shots, he would hit into the net. He couldn't really, he didn't really lift it, particularly on these surfaces like, um, like grass or clay where the ball didn't bounce up much. So that would happen. And so we would do say, well, look, I'm tired of you slicing your backhand low to my forehand. I'm going to make you hit a forehand now. They would hit that side spin forehand, and it was still kind of deep, and it was still kind of low. And then his opponents, they would have the conundrum of, well, now what do I do? I've got my forehand. I got to hit it. If I hit a cross court, which is the natural shot, it goes right back to his backhand. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if I hit it down the line, unless I hit it deep, I'm hitting it kind of short. And Connors was pretty comfortable against, as you saw, versus four against high four. And so it was kind of a, a tactical play on Connors' way to, to redirect the, the flow of the rally. I also, like, know, yeah. I also noticed he could, he could use it to, to chip and charge, which most players really only had on the backhand, but Connors could do it on both sides. Well, you mean like a side spin foreign approach in the middle of the rally, right? In the middle of the, as his approach. Right, right that, I would, that's I, a coming on the return. Yeah. Yeah. That shot, that shot goes back to, um, that was a little bit of a shot. That was a shot used in the 40s. Jack Kramer, the right-hander, had that shot too, where you would, you would kind of side spin the forehand into the backhand corner and then dare the person to come up with a good backhand passing shot. Mm-hmm. In Connor's case, being a lefty, he would hit it down the line or even sometimes cross court. Yeah, it was, it, it, it's, a, it's, a little, it's a little strange, isn't it? Like you're seeing him, he's kind of hitting with side spin and it's, and it's, and it's going cross court, but it's low. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was kind of a, an intriguing shot. Yeah, yeah, very different. I don't think it. I don't think it exists anymore, really, from from anyone on on the tour. Uh, no. Let's go. Yeah, go on. Let's go to the second set. Um, I think that the one thing, the one thing that I that I noticed was Borg um, trying to get into the cross court rallies on the ad side and really making Jimmy hit forehands. But for the most part. My assessment of the second set was that Borg played for the most part the same, but Connors' level dropped. I couldn't agree with you more. I, that's exactly right. I think, you know, Connors often started in kind of a fever pitch. And so he was going, going to the high, 
degree. And I think you're spot on. I think he got a little, a little sloppy in the second set. Borg, yeah, Borg just kind of maintains this level. He's just humming along. Mm-hmm. And you see the whole, the whole match, you see so much of it is in Connor's hands, in his, in his way. And yet Borg is steady. Borg is fast. Borg isn't going away. Serving pretty good at times. And Borg is right in the middle then of revamping and making his serve better. Um, so you're right. I think Connor's, Connor's level play dropped. And there you go. That's tennis for you, whether it's them or us. A, a little a margin here and there. And there you go. Borg was, was quite known for just staying absolutely the same all the time, right? Yeah, this pulse of about 35. I mean, he was just... He just had this low-grade hum to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, again, you know, Connors, it's mostly errors. If, if you look at how Borg um, gained the upper hand in this set, if you look, if you look at the break, it, it was uh, just one break in the second set, and uh, Bjorn won at 6-4. Uh, you know, Connors really, he, he lost the confidence on the piercing backhands that he was hitting in the first set, um, and Borg um, took the second. In the third, suddenly we're getting like a million breaks of serve. No one can hold serve. And a part of me is almost like, well, it's about time because the serve was almost a non-factor in the first two sets, yet they were holding. Yeah, it is kind of interesting how that kind of goes. And they each were, they each were good return game players because they each had good returns in different ways. And suddenly now the breaks happen and the serves, the serves, it's interesting how the tennis seemed in that match. The serves are fairly negligible, aren't they? I mean, between the clay yeah. and the way they each approach the game and the way they each approach points, neither was using the serve as much of an opportunity creator. I think Connors hit like two aces and Borg hit one. Yeah. I, that's, that's just from memory. I think when there are so few, you have a better chance at remembering. Yeah, that's right. I, I think so. And, and there weren't that many service winners. And also, also, neither is serve and volleying, so you don't have to worry about the net when returning, I mean, if I know you're never serving volley, I should never hit a return to the net. Yeah. Uh, my, to me, uh, maybe, maybe the shot that turned around the match was at um, four all. Four all love 30? Yeah, four all love 30. So Connors is, is serving and he's in a yeah, big hole here. If I may, just a sec. Should sure. we go back a couple of games to Connors up four two forty love? Um, yes, let's do that. Connors in the third set was up 4-2, 40 left. And so it appears that he's got a stranglehold on the match. I mean, we all, you know, you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to know that the third set after you split the first two is pretty important. So Connors up 4-2, 40 love and he loses the game and he hits four ends into the net and he gets, gets kind of, it's interesting how you see how even these great players, nerves and the situation. And next, you know, Connors who's seen pretty in control. He loses a serve, Borg holds, and now it's four all. Yeah, and and at forty thirty, do you think that ball was was going out because Connors took it out of the air, very close to the baseline? And I do wonder if that ball was going out. I think I think he just felt the need to play it. Yeah, yeah, great point. It's a yeah. great point. Um, okay, so basically, um, I think Con- Yep, four all love thirty, and the way we get there is is Connors misses a mid court forehand. And then Borg uh, makes a really good forehand pass. Um, at Love 30, Connors hits a backhand cross-court approach. And Borg hits a really good passing shot. 
And Connors just comes up with this incredible stretch volley right in the corner on the forehand side for a winner. It's fantastic. And it's interesting. First of all, I think the thing that's a little beguiling in that point is that Connors has a short ball to his backhand and he pretty much better off approaching down the line in tennis, mm-hmm. particularly if the guys, and particularly if you're going to the guy's weakness, which is his backhand. Borg's forehand was better than his backhand. So why Connors opted to go cross court with his backhand approach at that point is a bit of a mystery to me. And then he nearly paid the price for it because Borg cracked that pass pretty well. And Connors, um, it's interesting. I, I want to inject now a little bit of my uh, way to think about Jimmy Connors. Tendencies to think of him as this great, he's a great competitor and he's a grinder and he's a hustler. He's, he's Pete Rose. He's David Ferrer. He's late Newt. But no, Connors was the wrecking crew of his day. He was the big shot maker. He was, he was, he was not a singles hitter. He was not a lifetime 305 hitter in tennis. He was a lifetime 340 hitter. So he would hit shots. He would hit big shots. And, as, and we'll talk as we get into the rest of the third set, we'll talk more about some of that. And, and so, yes. Yeah, so, and then he could come up with, you know, the tennis equivalent of a 24 foot jumper, right? I mean, like that's a Steph Curry. Whoa, where'd that come from? And Arthur right. Ashe, who was broadcasting the match at the time, Connors doesn't even know how important that shot was. But the funny thing is, of course he did. For all love 30, he knew exactly how important it was. Yeah, that, that he, he basically goes on a tear uh, wins the next three points to to hold at 40-30 for, uh, for 5-4. And uh, this third set ends up going into a tiebreak. One of the things I, I noticed throughout the set is at this point, every time there's a short ball, Jimmy's pretty much uh, hitting an approach shot and coming straight to the net, which I think that was the main tactical adjustment from the first two sets, where in the first set, Connors was hitting so clean from the baseline, it didn't matter. Uh, in the second set, it was errors from Connors. In the third set, I thought there was a little bit more margin for for Jimmy uh, because he knew, well, I don't need to destroy the ball. Let me just hit an approach shot and come in. I think you're right. I think maybe maybe sometime in, he was thinking he had to hit bigger shots instead of approach shots. And so that got him a little off balance in that second set. And you're right. And then in the in the third set, he started to see more, okay, let's – Let's keep it deep. Let's keep it deep. Let's wait for our thing and let's hit a quality approach shot. Like he did, like again, at that four all point, that four all love 30, it was a pretty deep approach shot, but it was, uh, um, but at least he was the willingness to come in and hits the volley. And like here, I have the quote from uh, Arthur Ashe. He said, Connors had no idea how crucial that point was, but of course he did. And I think coming to net proves to make the, uh, a big difference. And so you want to, you want to get into the tie break? Yeah, let's get into this tie break. I think early on, Connors makes three pretty crucial mistakes. There's a double fault in there. There's a missed forehand volley where he had the open court and he, he should have put it away. And then there's a, a drop volley that he went for, which was a really difficult shot to go for. He finds himself down 6-4, double set point in the third set. From that point on, he gets really, really brave. Well, that is a really interesting phase in the whole life and career of Jimmy Connors. I mean, it's a set all. Uh, having to play a guy like Borg when you're down two sets to one is really rough. Borg already then was building his reputation as an incredible five-set player, and, and it's steady. And when a guy that steady is ahead of you, it's hard to be as forthright. So Connors, to his credit, really, really grabs a hold of things in that tiebreak, and he hits a number of terrific approach shots. Uh, 
<clears throat> comes in, levels the tiebreak at six all. And then at six all, he does something he rarely ever did. He aced Bork. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. He aced him to his forehand. It's the lefty serve out in the deuce court. And he's just going nuts and the crowd is going nuts. And uh, it's, a, it's a really compelling tiebreak. I mean, it's very dramatic and they're each a little tight and, and Borg is, seems impregnable. I mean, you wonder if you, it's just, he seems so, so steady and solid. So um, Connor is hitting his forehand approach shot, which is his weaker side, is hitting some good depth on that. But it, uh, again, he, he has a, now he has a set point at Borg. He's up 7-6, but he, um, he goes for a forehand cross-court approach and he's long on it. He's overhit it. So it's seven all. And I was 16 years old at the time and I was watching the tiebreak and watching that whole match and living and dying with Connors then. It was extremely dramatic. It was, uh, it, it was impeccable. And, and you're right. It, it was almost like Connors continuously got that short forehand approach and he just kept going for it. A couple right. times he executed perfectly. And then a couple times he, he got tight and, and he missed. It all culminates at nine all, which, which Joel, you watched Jimmy throughout his entire career. I have to think that this is one of the most memorable points there is. I think this point is one of the most critical points of Connor's career. And we talk about that. I mean, Connor's was on TV more than any other player in the years, the early years of the tennis boom. So he kind of created the templates of the player who's on TV the most. He was at one point in TV on 15 of the 16 highest tennis rated tennis matches, all featured Connors. So he was, uh, it's very dramatic for a lot of people who grew up then to see the whole Connors thing in full motion. And we talk a lot about the great points he played in 1991 versus Paul Harris at the US Open where Connors is defeating four lobs and wins the point. And but that, that was later at Connors' career. By then, Connors was 39 years old and his resume was kind of cooked. It's like, well, Michael Jordan, if he doesn't make that shot against Russell in the 98 NBA Finals, he still won five titles. It's still pretty good for Michael Jordan. So it's more earlier in the career. And at this stage of Connor's career, his resume is a lot more at stake. There's a lot more at stake from, so they get this nine all point and they have this rally. You want to talk, Gil, about then what Connor's comes to net. And then, so what yeah. happens with Borg? Well, Borg throws up, it, it's a lob, but it's not a very like high defensive lob. It's, you know, it's almost a in-between shot. Regardless, it's an extraordinarily high volley for Connors that he nearly can't even reach. But I think he, he retreats a little bit with his footwork, takes a couple steps back, reaches as high as he can, and he makes this, this high volley just to keep the point alive. And he's on his way back to the baseline when he hits this shot and he doesn't, he can't come back in. He just keeps going back. So suddenly you had Connors at the net after that forehand approach. Now we're back to a baseline rally. And in the end you get this vintage Connors backhand, which was just a massive frozen rope cross court. And it was a clean winner. That's exactly right. He Connors retreats the baseline of one point. He then he, he redirects the flow of the point by hitting that side spin forehand down the line. Borg goes back cross court. They're in a little bit of a rally, kind of a little bit of a minuet back and forth. And Connors, per his training, per his grandmother, telling him, you just hit the ball. And it's a little bit one of the great lines I learned from a coach is the ball doesn't know what the score is. Ball doesn't know that you're playing the U.S. Open final. The ball is just the ball. So it's there, you hit it. And that's 
I think one of the things that we so admire, I know I admire about great athletes, is if you've trained, if you've practiced, it's not necessarily going for it, it's what you own. I mean, it's just like Steph Curry, here's the 23 footer. Of course, I've practiced it, I'm shooting it, I got it. And so it's electrifying to see someone in that situation, nine all in the third set tiebreak, just take this backhand and just torch it. Like you said, a frozen rope makes me think a little bit in the more recent times of the 2011 US Open when Novak Djokovic was down match point to Federer and he just cracked that forehand for a winner. And Connors, that's gotta be one of the most important shots of his career. Yeah. It got him the, a set point at 10-9. And I think that that point probably shook Borg a little bit because it was the, the error that he makes on set point was a little bit uncharacteristic for me, at least in the, in the scope of this match, because for some reason he has a backhand and he tries to redirect it down the line. It was a high-risk, low-reward shot, and he missed it wide. Yeah, kind of a little sloppy. I think Borg, the air really went out of his balloon after losing his fourth set point on the uh, at the 8-9. And then at 9-all, Connors hit this winner. And I think Borg was still at that stage feeling intimidated by Connors, that Connors could kind of press him. And then Borg, the energy flow, you could see Borg was just kind of down. And the shot, he wasn't trying it. It wasn't that big a backhand down the line. He just kind of rolled it. And it was kind of late and kind of listless, kind of. Mm-hmm. Kind of sloppy, kind of like, I mean, I can't speak for you, but kind of, I know that shot. I'm a recreational player. It looked kind of like a sloppy move, like, wait, you're a pro? What happened? And he just, and then, and then the, and then that pretty much sealed the deal in some ways on that match. Yeah, because Borg went away a little bit in the fourth set. In the beginning of the fourth set, I actually thought, okay, maybe, maybe Bjorn's just changing his tactics because he plays a little bit more aggressively. He's hitting his backhand with more pace. That doesn't work very well against Connors. I think he liked the pace. Uh, But in reality, I don't think it was a change of tactics in an attempt to win the match. I think it was a change of tactics in an attempt to get the match over with. I think so, too. It sort of seemed that way. It seemed like Borg was just, all right, here's Jimmy. He's up two sets to one. I don't know. It's just kind of not my day. And and Borg then gets down in the fourth, though he kind of, he hangs on a little longer than the Connors fan in me wanted to see. And I remember that at the mm. time. And I remember when I've since watched that match, it's like, Borg, you fought off a few match points. Yeah, it, it got tense there with Connors trying to serve it out at 5-4. Uh, Borg hit a, a blistering backhand passing shot um, on, on match point, which right. if, if Borg got the break, you know, you never know. We could be talking about that shot. Right. I know. That's what's so amazing about tennis. So it's very tight. And finally, though, Connors again approaching, hitting, hitting a, uh, that side spin kind of forehand, in this case, cross court, mm-hmm. and, and coming in on it. And the board kind of capitulated, you know? He just kind of... Yeah. Yeah. So he has a backhand pass. And I think Borg was probably one of the better players at executing that, that low backhand pass cross court, right? Very much so. He had the whipping, dipping cross court backhand. Right. Yeah. This one just hits the tape. It's, it's close. It's close. Uh, right. Um, I guess we, I went over the, the 84. Or you know what? I think I'm thinking the 1980 Wimbledon final. I think the cross court. Oh, the one where he passed his macro. See, he whipped that one. Yeah. yeah it, 
Right, it was that shot, but he didn't make it. <laughs> well, I think that Connor's approach on this one was a little deeper than the Mackinac first volley in 80. And I think, I think the 1976 U.S. Open, the clay seemed to kind of mesmerize each player sometimes and get them a little slower. I think the, mm-hmm. the 1980 Wimbledon final on the slick grass, I think the neat thing about Borg or any player on the grass, particularly then, was you see that shot, you got to hit it because you don't know if you're going to get a good bounce. You don't know if it's going to be that short again. And there was a certain type of um, high-energy, committed quality to the way guys play at Wimbledon on grass. There's a little different. Like that, there are times in watching that match at Forest Hills on the clay, reaching them that's kind of like mesmerized. They get a little slow and kind of – it's almost like the clay becomes the third player on the court, kind of pulling them down. And you see sometimes Connor sometimes hits some of these forehands off his back foot, kind of high, board, kind of – Quasi moonbally. So there's the triumph for for Connors. What what did that win mean in in the long run? How do you remember that win? Was it about you know just the accomplishment in itself winning the U.S. Open? Was it about the the Borg rivalry? Um, how how do you look back on that win? Well, it's interesting with Connors, and maybe this is true for a lot of players. But I think when I think of Connors' career, it's the win in itself, which is always good. And then there's kind of where it fits into the tail. And this is a redemptive win for Connors. This is him proving, look, I had that great year in 74. I lost three finals in 75. Baby, I'm back. Don't count me out ever. And this guy from Sweden, yeah, he won Wimbledon. But, you know, it's the U.S. Open. And, and what's important, and the U.S. Open was quite significant then as sort of the showdown meaning tournament of the year. Wimbledon was very important too, but there was also a sense, well, Wimbledon's on, on grass and the bounces are kind of erratic. And the U.S. Open was coming up as a significant tournament. There were a lot of American players, <clears throat> the time of the year. So I think, I think, and also Connors, he'd beaten Borg on clay there the year before in the semis, but he beat Borg again on clay. And it kind of reminded him, hey, I'm number one. It kind of yeah. reminded the world that Jimmy Connors is number one in the world. That proved emphatically his number. He, he was 3-0 and versus Borg that year. Borg hadn't quite ascended to grand super status. He pretty much close there, but not quite. And kind of said, I'm still the guy. And so that meant a lot for Connors. Two years later, we get a rematch. It's, it's Borg and Connors again in the, uh, in the 80, 88. Um, no, 78. Seven, yeah, yeah. Uh, in the 78 uh, U.S. Open final. And this one, Connors wins again even more decisively. But it's interesting, if you look at, if you look at uh, Bjorn Borg's career, it's almost insane to me how you win that many French Opens, that many Wimbledons, but he never wins a U.S. Open. It is amazing. And also, of course, when you go to 78, and this is the thing with Connors, and he has, as you see, has these every other year slams, 74, 76, 78, and then later in 82. but uh, a lot happens in the Connors Borg rivalry between seven, that 76 US Open and 78. <clears throat> Borg earned several wins over Connors, including a significant win at the Pepsi Grand Slam, this four man tournament, which was seemed like an exhibition, but it really wasn't. And Borg beat Connors on clay there in January 77. And that set the tone for Borg then beating Connors in the 77 Wimbledon final, 6 4 in the fifth, and then drubbing him in the 78 Wimbledon final. And by this stage, by the summer of 78, Borg, it is there. He has won Wimbledon now three straight times. He's won the French 
three times. So, and, and in 78, he did the French Wimbledon double for the first time. So Borg has got it going, and he appears by this time to have displaced Connors as the man. And so Connors has a lot even more of redemptive quality to him at that 78 open. At the 78 Wimbledon is when he loses, he gets killed by Borg at Wimbledon. He makes the famous comments, I'm going to follow that guy to the ends of the earth. <laughs> and, and he kind of showed, I'm going to chase that Borg. But that 78 Open, um, you got McEnroe, who's 19 and had already been to the semis of Wimbledon. He's starting to make his move forward as the next great American. Uh, there'd been a very uh, in-depth article about Connors in Sports Illustrated just before the 78 US Open called Raised by Women to Conquer Men. And it kind of explored the whole psychology of Connors and his mother as the coach and his family. And also pointed out that Connors had lost six of the last seven slam finals he played I, I believe that was the total at that point and uh and yeah and so it was connor's meant meant to be kind of a, a runner-up so the 78 us open was a whole very important for him and so him to to beat borg and earn that kind of win um very very powerful and is after the 78 open is that when connor said i don't i don't know if you love me love me but yes. i love you that's when connor see the other thing with connor's in the u.s open 1976, the crowd wasn't entirely for Connors. Connors was still kind of the punk. 1977, it was even worse. He, in the semis, he was playing a match versus an Italian, Corrado Berazzuti. And Connors hits a ball of backhand inside out. And it's called in, but Berazzuti looks at the line and he's staring at it and he's about to ask the umpire to come down. Connors runs across the court, erases the mark. Complete rude and the crowd boos. And the next day, the crowd is not particularly for Connors. And he, he loses the 77th Forest Hills US Open final to Vilas, Guillermo Vilas. And it ends in like a soccer style ending, just a wild ending. And Connors is so distraught by that, he almost punches out a photographer. He, he, go, he leaves Forest Hills, he goes right from the court to the locker, to the car. No award ceremony for Connors. So Connors is like, still thought it was a punk. And then in 78, they move to Flushing Meadows, the new venue, the public park kind of venue with the hard courts. And when Connors wins the U.S. Open, he says, whether you like me or not, I, I sure like you. I like you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm paraphrasing it, but I right, like you. Right, right. Well, if, yeah, if anyone wants a, a more detailed written account of that, I'll, I'll, I'll put a link to the New York Times article you wrote in the comment section of this video. Uh, I think it's it's titled Jimmy Connors at the U.S. Open first hate then love. That's right, and then I write about it here. I, I have I made this right. is my my book about Connors, but uh, that's right. And then from '78 on, he had them in his pocket. They never rooted against him, and also mm -hmm. he was the old guy by then because here comes McEnroe. McEnroe's the next one. So '78, yeah, that changes Connors in the U.S. Open. The big difference, if you're looking at, and this sticks out like a, like a sore thumb, if you're looking at Borg's career and Connor's career, is that Borg calls it quits at 26 years old, and Connors calls it quits at 39? More, almost 40. Now, also, it's funny that you mentioned sore thumb, because to go back to the 78 <laughs> final, Borg had a blister uh, on, his, uh, on, his, on his thumb that, you know, that kept him from playing. I meant to do that. Oh, you did. Thank you. No, well, no I'm joking. I'm joking. Well, <laughs> I'm playing as well as he could have. And you hate to admit that because it was, it was tough for both players. Borg being injured, Connors wanting to win. Might, maybe Connors would have beaten him anyway. So 
So, uh, so there you have it. And, uh, and Connors though, like, you know, that 78 open, I, I should have added also that earlier in 78, Connors played the year ending masters in New York. And even then the crowd was starting to root for him. He kind of personified what New York was going through. New York was in a tough time then. And Connors was like New York fighting their way back. So then, yeah, I think your point about Borg and the U.S. Open, he reached four finals there. He lost two to Connors, two to McEnroe, and he never quite got comfortable there. The, the clay years, Connors was still a little better than him. And then by the hard court, along comes McEnroe. And um, I think Borg, he wasn't comfortable playing at night, the fast surface. Um, McEnroe had a great game for being Borg. And then Borg loses the 81 final, and he skips out on the awards ceremony. So it's a, it was a tough tournament for Borg. Why do you think he burnt out so quickly? And I wonder because we just enjoyed this documentary about Michael Jordan where he went out on top. Uh, he was winning championships. He was elite. I wonder if some of the same uh, mental um, dynamic took place with both players where they were so ultra competitive and obsessive that it was kind of exhausting for them to, to play at the top of their game. See, I think Jordan was more like Connors, and I think Borg, I don't know quite who Borg was like, but I think Borg was world-weary by the time he was 26. I think, first of all, his game, as, we, as you see in that 76 finals, whole career is based on a lot of attrition. There wasn't a lot of variety to Borg's mm -hmm. game. He, he diversified. In fact, by the time he's winning Wimbledon, even in 78, he's coming up to net a little bit more. He's... He's slicing the back end some, but at heart, his game, he's pretty much locked into a certain business model of his game, of how he was going to play with the topspin and the aggression. He also had played a lot. He turned pro when he was 15 or six. And I, I forget when he actually turned pro, but I just mean he was out there a lot. Um, he did a lot of exhibitions, a lot of endorsements. And I don't think Borg had quite the hunger to compete. And so you look at the end of 81, and here's McEnroe who's taken over from him at the top. Here's Connors who challenged Borg severely at the 81 Wimbledon, losing 6-4 in the fifth after being up two sets to love. And so Borg's saying, oh, Connors isn't going away, even though Borg had pretty much solved him by then. Then there's this guy, Lendl, who had beaten Borg. And I think Borg just got tired of the whole tennis thing. I don't think he had the ravenous appetite for competition that people like Michael Jordan and Jimmy Connors had. Whereas I think Connors had, Connors' game had a lot more diversity to it. He had a lot more engagement in competition. I think he, I think he relished the chance to keep proving it and competing and playing. And I think Borg, it was all, it was all a little too much. It was too, he put in so much work to be that good. And now he was number two. And there was still some of that vibe about, oh, go out on top. See, I think, and even Michael Jordan admitted in the documentary, Michael Jordan wished he hadn't. Michael Jordan would run to play more. And as you recall, he did come back and play more. He came back and played for Washington. So I think, I think that going out on top is a storybook notion. But it's, I think all the athletes I've come to know, it's like, I'm going to go out drooling. I'm going to go out to the last drop and play as much as I can. And if I'm not doing as well, if I'm hurting the team, the team will let me know. In tennis, the marketplace will let me know. I'll be losing matches and going down in the ranks. But I just think... Uh, I just think Borg, yeah, I don't think he had the, I think he was just weary of the whole tennis thing. We've covered a thousand angles and this has been so much fun to, to go over this match and 
the, the broader context. So I thank you for coming on and uh, we'll certainly do it again. Great stuff, Gil. Really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you.